пошли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. As you know, the SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you like this podcast, if you listen to it regularly, if you use it in some other capacity, please consider becoming a monthly patron by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button in the right-hand corner and join the table of ranks. Okay, so this week's episode is an interview with the Russian rock critic and music journalist Artemy Toritsky. Basically, if you wanted to know anything about Soviet rock in the late 1970s and the 1980s, Toritsky is the go-to guy. Um, I need to mention that this interview was organized by Margaret Budik. She took a class with Toritsky at Middlebury this summer, and she set up this interview with him. Uh, Margaret participated in the interview, but she wasn't available to record today's intro, but I just wanted to give her a shout out and give her thanks for doing all the legwork to to book Troitsky, and I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, uh, Artemy Troitsky is a journalist, music critic, concert promoter, radio host, and academic based in Tallinn, Estonia. He's written a couple of books on Soviet and Russian rock music and subculture, most recently Subkultura, Stories of Youth and Resistance in Russia, 1815 to 2017, published by Home Publications. So here is Artemy Troitsky. So, Artemi, you know, this is a, a great opportunity for us to talk to you because of your, as I said, your icon status and your history with Soviet and Russian rock and music in general. And I, I just thought to start off is, is maybe to have you go back in time and tell us, how did you get involved in the Soviet rock scene? What drew you into it? Well, I became a rock fan at the age of eight in 1963. Uh this was when I first heard uh, some Western rock and roll records like uh, the Beatles, uh, the Beach Boys, some other bands of that time, and I immediately fell in love with the music. Uh, at that time, I've been living with my parents in Prague, in Czechoslovakia. Uh, in 1968, we returned to Moscow, and... Uh, and well, I kept I kept my uh, interest in in rock music. I've been listening to uh, Western radio stations uh, uh, through constant jamming, and I uh, later I became also involved in the black market activities, selling, buying, and uh, trading. Uh, uh, LPs by my favorite bands, and in 1972, when I was already 17 years old, me and my friend Sasha, we've started the first disco in Moscow. It was the first disco and at the Moscow State University, and in order to maintain good sound, we had to hire equipment for this disco. 
Of course, we've had uh, turntables, not professional, of course, but, you know, just no normal home turntables. But we also needed uh, amplifiers and, and, and big speakers to make sound, uh, you know, a real sound. And this is how I first met uh, local rock musicians, because we've been renting these uh, equipment from them. We've rented uh, those uh, amplifiers and speakers from uh, Machine Vremeni, the most popular Soviet rock band at that time, uh, from Udachne Preabritenie and other rock bands. This is how I became acquainted with those guys, and uh, with some of them uh, we became uh, close friends, and this is also how I started to uh, go to uh, concerts, uh, all of which were, well, I wouldn't call them uh, purely underground, but they've been like semi-legal concerts, and... Uh, Yes, this is, uh, this is how I became involved uh, with Soviet rock, although I can tell you that uh, I never played Soviet or you know, Russian music at my disco because, uh, <laughs> because there were no records with rock music uh, by Soviet bands. And let me ask you about when you were exposed to this at such a young age. You know, I often hear about how you know, being in Eastern Europe, in your case, in Czechoslovakia, when you heard this music, as opposed to being in Russia or the former Soviet Union, can you, what was the difference in terms of access when you were in Prague and compared to when you back, went back to Moscow to this music? Well, of course, there was a difference, uh, uh, mostly because of the media situation. In uh, Prague, I could listen to Western European radio stations. Like, my favorite was Radio Luxembourg. And, uh, you know, I've constantly tuned in uh, to Radio Luxembourg and some other stations, and there was no jamming, nothing like that. So with radio, it, it was much, much uh, easier than in the Soviet Union. Also... Uh, Record sales in the Eastern European countries, they were somewhat more, more open and there was more material available even at legal record stores than in the Soviet Union. Of course, you know, I wouldn't compare stores in, in Prague or Warsaw with record stores in, in London or Berlin. I mean West Berlin, of course, uh, but uh, but still they were they were more uh, more uh, satisfying. Fast forward to whenever you were like feet first into this uh, rock music scene. You're working. You're every day like this is the center of your life. What did that look like? What did the scene look like? Well, the scene was actually not very active. Uh, I mean, I, I spent much more time hunting for new albums by Pink Floyd or King Crimson or Jethro Tull or Frank Zappa. Uh, and uh, frankly speaking, I wasn't really interested in, uh, in local rock music. I didn't like it because, you know, I was a very trendy guy. So... Uh, I've been listening to new Western music, and of course, it in the beginning of the 70s and throughout the 70s, 
it was a fantastic time with uh, with lots of great bands and so on. And uh, uh, I'm afraid that Soviet rock bands, they've been very, very backwards compared uh, to uh, the kind of music uh, uh, that I've listened to uh, uh, coming from the West. Yeah, so, uh, so I didn't really bother too much about going to concerts. I went there, of course, simply because uh, these guys, they became my friends and... Uh, and of course, live concert experience uh, is somewhat different from uh, from listening to records. Uh, but I was uh, not too much uh, too much into it, primarily because, uh, as I told you, until until the very end of the seventies, uh, when I first heard bands like Aquarium and Kino and Sandra and so on. Before that. Uh, uh, I wasn't really uh, impressed by uh, by this music. It was too old-fashioned for my taste. What, what do you mean by, I'm kind of curious as to, what do you mean by kind of backward and old-fashioned? Uh, you know, what existed then before, you know, these other bands developed the sound? Well, uh, most Soviet bands, they've been heavily influenced by the Beatles. So it was uh, like a very nice uh, melodic rock with sometimes interesting lyrics and so on. But I was already interested in uh, more sophisticated music. I mean, you know, how can you compare, say, uh, uh, pop rock sounds of, say, the Beatles or, or the Rolling Stones with, say, the progressive rock of King Crimson or or Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band and and so on. You know, I I preferred weird music and and uh, adventurous music. And Soviet rock was never really uh, musically adventurous. It was always very interesting from the point of view of contents, lyrics, philosophy, and so on. But musically speaking, I was never impressed by 99% of Soviet rock bands. Well, it's hard to measure up to, you know, Pink Floyd and, and whatnot. But uh, um, but so then what what about, so you said that, you know, it's not the actual, like the music itself, it's, it's the philosophy, it's the lyrics, the people, of course. So what a... Yes, yes. I think I think the people, you know, the Tusovka, this scene, you know, the energy and so on, and the girls, they were they were the main thing. Was there like certain like in a lot of you know music scenes? Was there a certain style of dress, certain things that you consumed that made you part like an insider versus an outsider to this community? Oh, indeed, yes. Well, dressing up was very important. I mean, you know, it was, uh, I think, the same thing in the West. I mean, all those uh, musical subcultures, they contain several elements. I music is one. Uh, say philosophy, you know, some books uh, is two. Uh, and uh, the manner of behavior and the way you, you uh, dress up uh, were uh, one of the most important ingredients. So... So, of course, uh, Black Market uh, was partly for the records and partly for jeans, uh, 
uh, interesting boots and <laughs> and, and t-shirts with uh, with western logos and so on so yes it was uh, it, it was tremendously important and uh, and uh, you know we've been uh, spending enormous money on on all those uh, paraphernalia of uh, of a rock fan so so how did this you know the black market was so important so how did it work like how did you get you know acquire the things that you needed to be to participate in this scene whether it's the records or the clothes or other kind of paraphernalia okay well the black market of course it wasn't really a market if there was a market like this uh, then it would be immediately uh, uh, <laughs> taken by cops and uh, no the black market was uh, 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 conspiracy it was a network of of people uh, who who've been selling records selling clothes and so on uh, most of those people they had access uh, to those uh, who could go abroad and uh, there were several categories of of those uh, uh, importers uh, one important category was foreign students, the third world students who've been studying at uh, Soviet universities, uh, guys from uh, mostly Africa and Latin America, like Nigeria, Peru, and so on. And they uh, went uh, on holidays to their native countries and on the way, say from uh, Ecuador or 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 Cameroon, uh, back to Moscow, back to their university, they uh, made uh, stops, uh, say in London or Paris or West Berlin, and uh, bought there all these black market treasures, like like records, like Levi's jeans, and so on. And, and then they had their agents uh, in uh, Moscow, Leningrad, other Russian cities, and they sold it to them, and then they resold it for uh, bigger money to us. So this was one thing. Another thing uh, was uh, normal Soviet citizens, but with access to the West, like uh, some uh, sportsmen or diplomats, or uh, members of uh, Soviet ensembles like, say, the Bolshoi Theater or Berioska Ensemble and, and so on. So, so these guys, they also they went, they went abroad and they, uh, they brought all those uh, uh, treasured uh, goods uh, from, uh, from there to, to Russia. And and it was a very very profitable business. I have no idea, and I think nobody knows uh, how many millions or billions were uh, spinning uh, in this underground business. But uh, but it was huge. It was really huge, and uh, uh, it was everywhere. It was everywhere, and 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 there was all kinds of goods. I mean. Uh, I was interested in records and partly in clothes, but it was also electronics. It was also uh, French perfume, uh, and uh, well, lots of lots of other things. What is your most prized object? 
I don't. I I don't remember. You don't. You don't. I don't still, you don't still have like. You. you don't still have like I'll one get... of these records that you got. Well, I've I've had hundreds of them. Uh, I can tell you that a new a new uh, album by a popular Western band would cost me from fifty to seventy rubles, and this was the time when average monthly salary of a Soviet citizen was 120 rubles. So I could easily spend one half of my monthly, I stress it out, monthly, not weekly or whatever, salary uh, on, uh, on a vinyl album. Well, the jeans were even more expensive. I mean, uh, a pair of Levi's or Wrangler or Lee jeans uh, would cost uh, about 150 rubles on the black market. So it was even more than an average monthly salary. So people were willing to, to obviously willing to spend that amount of money for these items. So how did, how did, take you for example. So how did you get the money to, to buy these expensive items? Well, it's a good question, of course. Uh, of course, I couldn't buy all the records that I wanted. So I, uh, in order to get a new record, I would probably need to sell another record. So I've been selling records, buying records, and swapping records. And, uh, I, and of course, I, I was also uh, hiring these records, brought them home and taped them. So all kinds of, of measures I, I, I would take to obtain desirable music. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting, in, in my reading and learning about, say, popular culture or underground culture, subcultures and authoritarian systems, there's an interesting irony in the fact that the restrictions that the state has for regulating or prohibiting the consumption of these, you know, cultural items creates a, a very interesting community that's tight knit, right? You're, you're actually, it's a very, it, it, it seems to me from listening to you and from others that it's less alienating that you're part of, did you feel like you were part of a, a, a community? Yes, it was, uh, it was a community and it, and it was quite a, quite a diverse community. Uh, well, of course, the core of my company were music lovers, uh, musicians, rock fans, and so on. But on the fringes of this community, we've had all kinds of things, uh, criminals, uh, who else, diplomats, as I told you, uh, and uh, all kinds, uh, all kinds of uh, ah yes, also dissidents because because uh, uh, all people interested in Western culture uh, and uh, uh, avoiding uh, Soviet communist culture. Of course, we all automatically became kind of dissidents, even if we were absolutely apolitical. So, so I uh, at that time I've been uh, I've been dealing with uh, you know hippies, and among hippies there was a lot of uh, say Jesus freaks, uh, 
uh, and all kinds of religious fans, uh, underground Buddhists, Hare Krishnas, and so on. It was there was a very, very strange and very kaleidoscopic uh, community, and and they've had one thing in common: they all tried to live a different life from from what was. Uh, uh, implemented by uh, by the state. What about politics? And I I mean by in the broadest sense. Now, granted, you were political by default because <laughs> you wanted you were interested in Western you know cultures and music. But the people around you were there people who be who were making music who were explicitly political. No, I think I think that. Uh, 90 something percent of of my surrounding of of my hippie punk uh, rock and roll friends they didn't really care about politics i mean of course they've all been uh, anti-soviet to one extent or another they uh, uh, it was simply because like we've been listening to to western radio stations and uh, uh between uh, uh, music shows, we could hear news, so we knew what's going on in the world, and we heard the alternative, the alternative information coming from, say, the Voice of America, BBC World Service, and so on. So we've been aware of what's really going on in the world, uh, uh, in the world. Uh, but I wouldn't say that we've been uh, really interested in that. I mean, when we got together, we would never talk about Brezhnev or, or say, uh, the war in Afghanistan or, or things like that. Uh, we've been interesting, interested in, uh, in other things. Uh, I think that uh, in later, later in the 80s, in the 80s, politics became more on the agenda but in the 70s it was it was totally uh, somewhere else do you think that the reason why politics became more a part of soviet music is because of well what do you think it is why do you think that politics was so dissociated from the music scene in the 70s and then it became a part of it in the 80s and especially the 90s well i think i think the situation changed uh, you know in the 80s uh, uh, we started to think more about politics because politics repressive politics started to uh, get us in our lives i mean before 1981 1982 uh, rock music was existing uh, without any pressure from uh, the authorities. I mean, they simply ignored it completely. They didn't know what is this. I mean, you know, uh, what irritated them is, is long hair and weird clothes, but they knew nothing about our, our music and, and our culture. But, uh, but in the 80s, uh, a couple of things started to happen one was uh, that more and rock um, uh, one is that more and more rock bands started uh, to sing in russian and very often they sang songs uh, that the authorities 
wouldn't like and that they would consider anti-Soviet or decadent or written under bourgeois influence or whatever. Because, you know, uh, most bands in the Soviet Union in the 60s and the 70s, they they were cover bands. I mean, they all sang in English. They, uh, they sang songs by the Rolling Stones, by Jimi Hendrix, uh, uh, by uh, the Beatles and so on. And, and uh, so there was, uh, there was no message except for the message that this music is great. Uh, but when, when the songs uh, were sang in Russian language and were more articulated, this was already, this was already dangerous. So uh, this was one important reason for, uh, for uh, uh, the politics uh, to uh, invade in our world. And the second one was uh, underground home taping. Uh, which uh, uh, became a very big and very popular industry starting from 1980. And uh, it was uh, uh, like a music version of Samizdat. And uh, Samizdat was actually much, much smaller, if we talk numbers, than these... Uh, it was called magnetis dot, like magnetophones and magnetis dot. Uh, and uh, underground albums by bands like Aquarium or Kino, they've been uh, uh, taped and, and retaped and uh, spread in the whole countries in hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of, of copies. And this, of course, uh, this was. Uh, a very dangerous thing for uh, for uh, the authorities. What were the con what were the potential consequences? The potential consequences. Uh, well, uh, uh, they simply wanted to ban it, and they've uh, and they've created uh, so called the Chornespiski blacklists of uh, bands and artists. Uh, whose recordings were uh, totally uh, forbidden from not only uh, being played on uh, radio and TV, but also they couldn't be played at discotheques and also those bands in the blacklist, they couldn't play uh, public concerts. And the only exception from this rule was the famous Leningrad Rock Club. So this was the uh, from uh, like eighty two to uh, mid eighty five. Leningrad Rock Club was the only venue in Russia where uh, bands can could legally play live. I mean, what makes the music a rock music? Like, what are the elements of this music in the Soviet Union makes it rock as opposed to other types of genres. And what makes it, is there any, because, you know, you've said, you said in, in your, your book, uh, um, I have it right here, back in the USSR, uh, the first line is this rock is an international language, which I completely agree with. There's something about it that just has captured the imagination of billions of people around the world. So what, but what makes it 
like particularly Soviet or Russian? What are the elements and and that that make it distinct from say I don't know the Rolling Stones or Western rock, if at all? Maybe not. Okay, well, as I told you, uh, up until approximately 1980, I didn't give a shit about Soviet and Russian rock because I found it boring. Uh, what I liked about rock music is the energy, uh, the wild sound, uh, the innovation, the weird styles, and so on. You know, this is why I loved uh, people like, I don't know, Jimi Hendrix, Frank Zappa, David Bowie, and so on, because they all been so flamboyant and, and talented and uh, crazy and uh, fantastically energetic. And I think uh, that it was uh, that this perception was was shared by uh, by all all my friends. Now, what made uh, Soviet rock was uh, slightly different. First of all, Soviet rock was uh, kind of inspired by slightly other things than rock music in the West, like American rock music. Uh, is uh, or rather was very much uh, uh, rooted in the racial problems. Of course, in uh, in the Soviet Union, we didn't have uh, many Afro-Russians, so so this was uh, this was not the issue. Another thing in the West was uh, religion, uh, Christianity, Christian dogmas, and so on. In uh, the Soviet Union, uh, Christianity and all other religions were rather uh, underground. Uh, so again, you know, a different, a, a different context, a different paradigm. Uh, in uh, the Soviet Union uh, rock was inspired by other things. It was inspired by the general lack of freedom, I would say, and by uh, envy and urge uh, to uh, to be a part of a non-Soviet culture, i.g., Western culture. So, so this was, I think, uh, you know, the the main motivation behind Soviet rock, and also, uh, well, you know, it's uh, it's a thing that uh, is rather, uh, well, it's a common thing that uh, Russian rock was much more poetic and philosophical, and was much uh, more about, say, uh, spiritual things than, say, the typical Western issues like sex and drugs and alcohol and so on. Uh, so, uh, so the, you know, the, the general sense of rock in Russia and the Soviet Union was, uh, was utterly different from, uh, from what was there in the West. You know, what uh, made the two things uh, melt was uh, was only the music behind it. But, uh, but content-wise, uh, it was uh, something completely different. So do Russian, Russian musicians, rock musicians, are they also drawing on, I mean, 
the Russian poetic tradition, the bard tradition like Lujava or Vysotsky, uh, and other kind of cultural traditions of the past? Yes, yes. Starting starting from uh, bands like Mashina Vremini and then a lot of bands uh, from the 80s, uh, the bardic tradition and the general Russian literary tradition be- uh, became uh, became uh, a central uh, thing for uh, for Russian rock, and uh, like all Russian rock gurus, they've been first of all they've been great poets, not necessarily good looking, not necessarily sexy not necessarily good showmen, uh, rather kind of static, boring, uh, but, uh, but great poets. So, so for Russia, I would say that if uh, a typical Western rocker, uh, 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 you could probably say is Mick Jagger, then typical Russian rocker is rather Bob Dylan. You know, with uh, with his uh, unimpressive voice, static figure on stage, and uh, uh, and but uh, very mysterious and uh, uh, intriguing uh, lyrics. So you don't think there was a difference in the sound at all? Like when they think like Nautilus, Pompilius, Ili, or um, you know, Aquarium. You, I mean, I guess. What do you think? sound was completely the same no no almost almost all uh soviet bands and russian bands with very few exceptions they've been just aping western sounds aping western music of course they've been following different leaders you know some stayed with the beatles in the 60s others played hard rock say led zeppelin style then, of course, well, bands like Nautilus, Pampilius, uh, they played like new wave uh, uh, style uh, bands like Aquarium. Uh, they played a mix of folk rock and reggae. So, but, uh, but very, very few bands uh, have uh, came up with, uh, with something original. Let's uh, let's talk about the, the some of the things in the present. You know, as somebody who participated in this subculture for for decades and lived through all of these changes, both you know political, historical, but also cultural. How how do you look at when you look at Russian music today? How do you evaluate it? You know, considering your experience. Well, I think that. Uh... Russian rock music was really important throughout several decades and for different reasons. In the 60s, it was important because it was like a breath of fresh Western wind. Uh, In the 80s, it was important as a tool of perestroika and and reforms and so on. And it was like... uh, the music of uh, of changes in the 90s it was still quite important because it also became a big popular genre uh, with uh, uh, good results uh, in terms of uh, 
show business. I mean, you know, videos, charts, records, and so on. And, uh, you know, uh, rock musicians started to live a normal professional life. And musically speaking, especially technically speaking, uh, they became much better than they used to be in the old Soviet times. Uh, right now, right now, I would say that Russian rock... Well, I think uh, there was at least uh, uh, one, one or one and a half decades when rock music didn't mean much in Russia, and this was, uh, you know, the first 15 years of, of, of this century. Uh, now it's starting to become important again because of, of the extreme political situation in the country and because of the fact uh, that rock musicians and rappers are suddenly again uh, in the forefront of uh, social and political struggle. And uh, you know that uh, a lot of those musicians have uh, escaped from the country and now only perform abroad. And uh, there are also big, long blacklists of forbidden performers in Russia, exactly like it was in uh, Brezhnev and drop of times in uh, like 8384 uh so uh, so i think that now now rock is starting to uh, to become uh, uh well a visible a visible and audible uh, thing uh, again and i'm very glad about that uh, also also because uh, it's not only made by angry young kids, you know, like Pornefilm or, or, or Short Paris or other kind of new and, uh, and aspiring bands, but it's also done uh, by the veterans. I mean, uh, even Andrei Makarevich of Machine Vremini uh, or Boris Grebenshikov Aquarium, uh, let alone Yuri Shevchuk of DDT, they are in, in very, very good shape. Uh, I'm constantly in touch with them. Uh, I, I even sometimes uh, manage to get to their concerts, and and I must tell you that uh, they are in very good shape, and uh, they haven't lost any of of their of their uh, goodwill and uh, and energy. And musically speaking, again, uh, well, I could. <laughs> I could uh, uh, make some criticism about what they do, but uh, but after all, uh, you know, they are not they are not about uh, composing uh, uh, something extraordinarily original. You know, they're more much more about the message of their music and uh, the. Uh, re uh, response, you know, the feedback from their audience. Do they have like now? Uh, are the how important are the or how important are the financial pressures on the on musicians? Like, how does that 
how does the financial pressure, the fact that you know you have, you're you're a professional musician, you're making a living, you need to sell records, you need to sell out sell concert tickets, um, and you musicians around the world, particularly, I mean, I could say in the West mostly, are under great pressure financially uh, because of you know the internet. What kind of how does it work on musicians in Russia now? Uh, the financial pressures. Well, we have uh, we have uh, more complicated situation than what you have in the West, because in the West you don't have blacklists, you and and you don't have censorship, and you don't have dozens of musicians uh, who are forced to leave the country. Uh, and this is the case uh, in Russia right now. Like uh, Yuri Shevchuk and DDT, they are arguably the most popular Russian rock band at the moment. And they are blacklisted uh, after Shevchuk uh, uh, saying from stage at one of the concerts that motherland is not Putin's ass. And you don't need, and you don't need to kiss it. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and I speak with Yuri, and and I understand that they are in a rather desperate position because they can't play live. They're uh, next week, I think, or even uh, yes, uh, on the coming week, they are releasing a new album. And of course, uh, traditionally and professionally, they should have gone tour to support the, uh, this new album. Uh, but now they cannot do it because they are totally forbidden for any public appearances. Uh, yes, they are in Russia. And uh, so he told me that, uh, well, we are, uh, we are hoping for uh, for our crowdfunding campaign, so they've uh, they've made a deal with uh, one of the biggest uh, crowdfunding companies in Russia, Planeta.ru, uh, and uh, they are selling their albums, and, and so this is how they hope to make uh, to make some money. But of course, that's uh, that's not enough. This is, uh, the situation of uh, those bands who have emigrated is better because, uh, because they can perform and now there's a lot of tour by Russian rock and rap acts uh, in both Western Europe and North America. Like I live in Tallinn and almost every week uh, we have some... Uh, some big rock or rap name uh, from uh, from Russia performing here, and I'm very glad uh, that uh, you know it's it's okay to do it. They are not cancelled because they are Russian, and uh, I think that it's uh, it's just a, a a wholly new development. We now have uh, inner Russia, which is becoming more and more like North Korea. And outer Russia, uh, which is uh, which is free and interesting and and more and more populated, but it's outer. 
So, so it's an uh, it's an interesting thing, and I don't really know where uh, this situation will lead us. Uh, my my hope is uh, that, like in the late seventies and early eighties, there will be a massive underground cultural movement in Russia. You know, like we've had this uh, uh, Magnetis Dat, like we have Kvartirniki, the apartment and Dacha concerts and so on. I mean, uh, all uh, all kinds of uh, tricks uh, that would make uh, a music possible in under uh, un- impossible circumstances. That, now, of course, there is internet, you know, all those social networks and digital things and so on. So I think that it will be, it will be easier to, to create a, a digital underground. Uh, so far, so far, I, I, I wouldn't say that it's already happening uh, big scale, but I hope, I hope it, will, uh, it will be the thing for, uh, uh, for the next years. Uh, what, what, what about the what about the place of rap music today in Russia, right? Because we've been talking about rock and the significance in the past, but I would imagine that rap music it, it has an incredible following. Uh, what role does it does it play like a similar role as music did in the seventies and perhaps in the eighties? Well, well, I wouldn't say that there's uh, any kind of difference between rock scene and rap scene. Except for the music itself, <laughs> of course the the music is completely different. Uh, but uh, the function of it, the role of it, is more or less the same. And uh, we have uh, very popular, politically focused rappers like Aximiron, uh, Noise MC, uh, Face, and other guys. And uh, uh, I wouldn't say that they're more popular than the big rockers. I think they are more or less in the same league. And also uh, there's, uh, there's no rival, rival, rivalry and no uh, jealousy, envy between uh, the two communities. And some artists like Noise MC, you can... Uh, call him both rap and and rock. He's somewhere in, in between. Or Delphine, my favorite, is also well. He started out as a, uh, as a pure rapper. N- what he's doing now is you know I can't even uh, categorize it, uh, but uh, I think it's neither rap nor rock. It's some kind of post rap slash rock, uh, and it's uh, it's really. It's really interesting. So uh, I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't make any, uh, I wouldn't draw any any lines, let alone red lines, between rap scene and rock scene in uh, in Russia. What about uh, female artists or even non-Russian artists? Do you have it? What is your kind of you know take on their their place in all of this? Well, I think we've had uh, we had an explosion of female artists in the second half of the '90s. You know, with uh, Zemfira and uh, Nashne Sniper and so on. 
Right now, uh, the female scene is not uh, as visible in Russia as as before, unfortunately. I mean, it's not like in the United States uh, where, uh, as I can uh, judge, uh, like 70-80% of the best music uh, is done by females, not males which is a completely different situation from what you've had in the 70s and in the 80s and even the 90s. So uh, in Russia, this is not so. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that uh, the female uh, uh, part is especially strong, but of course there are, there are still some, uh, some great uh, performers like uh, Magnetochka, who is now uh, doing joint concerts with Noise MC. And again, uh, I've just told you about rap and rock. So Magnetochka is rather rock or rock slash soul or rock slash singer-songwriter. And Noise MC is a rapper and they make joint concerts in support of peace and Ukraine and so on. So... uh, Yes, I personally, I'd be very happy if, the, if we had more interesting new female artists, and I'm pretty sure that uh, that they uh, they will emerge. I generally think that the future belongs to women, and what's happening, like in Iran right now, just shows that that in, in the modern world, women seem to be more fit uh, to fight than uh, than males yeah um so music journalism is where your career started what do you think makes for a good music journalist well you know i've been teaching at uh, the faculty of journalism of the moscow state university for 13 years and uh, at the introductory lectures in the beginning of each year I've I've been uh, uh, telling exactly what you now ask me about, and and I said that in order in order to become a, a good music journalist, you have uh, to possess three qualities. One quality is that you have to love music. You must love music, you must try to understand it, uh, and uh, uh, you must uh, try to get deep into this music. Uh, Quality number two is uh, you must have your own opinion. I mean, if you're writing, about something uh, that then it only makes sense if you say something new. If you don't, you know, just uh, uh, name uh, names and and instruments and song titles and biography details and so on, but you have to analyze it and you have to come up with your own uh, thoughts on on the subject. And equality number three is you have to have style. Uh, and when I say say style, I don't mean uh, 
trendy clothes, but uh, but a good style of writing. Uh, because even if you love music and and say interesting things about it, but if you put all this in a very boring way, very few people uh, will uh, want to read it. So it uh, your writing has has to be entertaining. So these are the, two qual- uh, the three qualities that make good music journalists, in my humble opinion. So finally, you know, somebody who's listening to this interview, who knows very little or nothing about Russian music or Soviet rock music, who would you, if somebody wanted to get into it, what, what would be, who would you recommend as the introduction for people to go in and check out and listen to? Say like this, your top three. Well, Sean, I'm afraid. I'm afraid this question has uh, has no responsible answer, because because people like different things in music. They are interested in in totally different uh, uh, parts of the phenomenon, and and uh, say for some people, uh, for those people who are interested in adventurous music, I would recommend one set of artists for for the people who are interested in like what music was really important uh, for russian youth i would recommend a completely different set uh, those who are interested say in great voices or fantastic playing then it it will be a third set of artists so so I don't really know. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that that we have uh, uh, artists who would uh, who would be loved by by everyone, uh, especially if we talk about foreigners who don't understand lyrics. I mean, for Russians, for Russians uh, who know nothing about Russian rock, of course, I would recommend. Uh, uh, firstly, I would recommend, uh, say, bands like Kino, because they have perfect pop quality, great melodies, and they also have uh, great lyrics, and they also look stylish and so on. So they they have you know the most uh, the most good features in them. Uh, but I'm not sure that uh, this advice uh, would be would be the best uh, optimal for uh, for for an audience. What, what, so, what about you? What are your top three favorites? My personal favorites. Well, I would say I would say that I really like uh, one contemporary Russian band who are still in in Russia, and I think that they're absolutely. Absolutely incredible. Probably they are the best Russian band ever, not only uh, uh, on record, but also uh, live on stage and video. And it's a band from St. Petersburg, although they, most of the members come from Siberia. They're called Short Paris. I think they're, uh, they're tremendous. Страны, пацаны, в полцены говорит Москва, и пьяны в полвины, и дыра в полведра 
Apart from that, I think, well, of course, I, I love Zvuki Mu because this is uh, <laughs> arguably the weirdest and the most original of all Russian bands. And also because I was personally very strongly involved in this band. Absolute favorite forever is Alexander Beshlachev, who, of course, is a singer-songwriter, uh, but he's a true genius, and and it feels, and uh, and uh, you know his genius, you know, just just uh, I'm soaked with <laughs> with his poetry. Ох, долго шли, с Ноем и Морозами все снесли И остались вольными, жрали снег с кашей березовой И росли вровень с колокольнями Если плач, не жалели соли мы Если пир сахарного пряника в звонари Черными мозолями рвали нерв Медного динамика, но с каждым днем Времена меняются, купола Растеряли золото в звонари По миру слоняются колокола Битый расколотый, что ж теперь? Ходим круг до да около На своем поле, как подпольщики Если нам не отлили колокол Значит, здесь время колокольчика Зазвенит сердце под рубашкой в торопях В рассыпную вороны, эй, выводи! Коренных с пристяжкою и рванем На четыре стороны, но сколько лет Лошади не кованы Ни одно колесо не мазано, плетки нет Седла разворованы и давно Все узлы развязаны, а на дожде Все дороги So the three artists you just heard that Artemi considers some of his favorites were Short Paris, Zvuki Mu, and Alexander Baslachov, uh, and of course, you just heard Artemi Toritsky. 
Artemi Troitsky is a journalist, music critic, concert promoter, radio host, and academic based in Tallinn, Estonia. He's written a couple of books on Soviet and Russian rock music and subculture, most recently Subkultura, Stories of Youth and Resistance in Russia, 1815 to 2017, published by Home Publications. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like yourselves. So if you like this podcast, please take a moment to share it on social media. Tell your friends, family, anyone you think would be interested. You can also drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or at srbpodcast.org to let us know what you think. Um, and as always, we'd love to have your support here at the SRB Podcast. It, this is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and that means that it relies on the support of individuals and other institutions to keep it completely free of paid advertising uh, and keep it open for anyone to listen to. So please help us keep it that way. So be, join the table of ranks. Consider becoming a monthly patron. I can certainly use your support. And until next time, bye.